This past summer, I had the joy of being the junior high speaker at CBM camp. And I enjoy summer camps because they have group games, organized games. And like every good summer camp, uh, CBM had a day of water games. In one particular game, the junior high staff, uh, they were equipped with weapons. Now, when I say weapons, I don't mean nunchucks or swords. After all, these are water games. I mean water guns. When I say water guns, most of you understand what I'm talking about. You can picture it. It's those types of guns, water guns, that you fill with water and you manually pump and you build up air pressure and then you pull the trigger and the pressure releases and a stream of water comes out. And they had a few of these. Some of the counselors were equipped with water guns. But then there was a next level of weapon. The fire hose. <laughs> now immediately you understand the difference in comparing those two weapons. The water gun versus the fire hose. In comparison, a water gun is pitiful, and a fire hose is fierce. Why? Well, consider the way that those two things work. A water gun, you have to manually pump, manually fill. And for a water gun, you provide the strength. You pump it. But even then, you're limited. Because even then, the water gun can only be pumped up so much. It can only build up so much pressure. It can only shoot water only so far as the strength of the one who pumped it. But the fire hose, all you do is connect the hose to a hydrant. And then the hydrant, as its source, it provides the pressure and the water that does all the work for you. All you do is release the nozzle and a stream of water flows out, so much stronger than even a water gun. There's nothing fancy about the hose. Think about that. Think about the hose itself. There's nothing fancy about the hose. The hose itself doesn't provide the pressure. It doesn't provide the water. It simply connects to a source and then, and then lets the source provide both the water and the work, the pressure. And as I thought about Hebrews 11, verse 1, I thought faith is like a water fight. And the question is, are you a water gun or a fire hose? A water gun views faith as something that you muster up in yourself, that you pull yourself up by your faith bootstraps. You have to build up pressure yourself. You have to muster up enough faith, and then, and only then, will you be able to release a powerful stream of Christian living. But the fire hose recognizes that when it comes to faith, I contribute nothing. God simply connects me to Christ and then lets his grace flow through my life. 
And so as we approach our passage this morning, think to yourself, am I a water gun or am I a fire hose? Let's read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Let's stop there. This passage teaches us two facets of faith. Two facets of faith. The first is faith is trust in who God is. We see that in verse 1. And the second facet is faith is trust that is lived out. And we see that in verse 2. So first, faith is trust in who God is. And then faith is trust that is lived out. Now, before we get into the first facet, let's review the context of where we are in the book of Hebrews. We've been studying this book. We've been walking through this book uh, written to the Hebrews. Hebrews was written to an audience of Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers are tempted to revert back to Judaism. And they're tempted to do that because they're experiencing immense social pressure. They're experiencing immense persecution and trials. Their life is hard. And so the writer of Hebrews has spent 10 chapters making the case, explaining why Jesus is better, why Jesus is superior. He teaches us things that, like, Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the prophets. He teaches us that that Jesus is the better high priest of a better covenant that has a better tabernacle of which he is the better sacrifice. And because of that, he offers a better future possession and a better hope. All that to say, chapters 1 to 10 have focused on the person of Jesus Christ and why he is superior. And because Jesus is superior, he alone deserves our worship and our praise. Therefore, Christ ought to be the focus of our life. And it's important to remember the flow of this, the writer's argument in chapters 1 to 10, because when we come to chapter 11, to our passage this morning, we come to a very familiar passage. And we have to remember the flow of this writer's argument, even in our context, when we come to Hebrews 11, because we come to a passage that most Christians know. And it's a verse that is often quoted. It's a chapter, chapter 11, is described as the hall of faith. And it's not wrong to call it that. But we tend to look at these stories, and we look and we see and we say, look at what you can do if you simply have enough faith. We look at it as a water gun. But I'm going to make the case this morning that in the context, looking at our specific verses, that that's a misunderstanding of the passage. That we're misunderstanding what the writer is saying if we look at the people in Hebrews 11 and we say, look at what you could do. 
if you have enough faith. We'll see that that's a misunderstanding. Because I think when you look, and I believe when you look at this passage in its context, the writer hasn't changed focus. It's not that the writer, after writing 10 chapters telling us to focus on Christ, now all of a sudden in chapter 11 shifts the focus to what great men can do, what great men can accomplish. No, I would argue that even in chapter 11, here in our passage, the focus is Christ. And so as the pastors planned out how we were going to approach Hebrews 11, we decided to break the chapter into two sermons. And because we want things to be fair, we decided to break it up evenly. And so I'm going to cover the first two verses. And Pastor Roger next week is going to cover the last 38 verses. (laughs) This seems about equal. I'm just kidding. I'm not good at math, and even I know that 38 is greater than 2. So, we broke this up because we, want, we see that this is the natural section break for the passage. This is the natural section break, and there's also so much to talk about in even just verses 1 to 2. There's a lot to unpack, so let's start unpacking that now. The first facet of faith. Faith is trust in who God is, verse 1. Let's read again Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, think about that. This is a very popular verse. You have heard this verse before. When someone asks you for a definition of faith, we often flip to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And I do that too. So I don't want to be overly critical When asked about faith, when asked about what faith is like, I want us to keep turning to Hebrews 11, verse 1. It's a good verse to go to. So when we go to here, when someone asks us what faith is, I want us to have more detail. So I'm going to give us more detail of what Hebrews 11, 1 is is teaching us about faith to help in your understanding of this verse. So first, I want you to know that verse 1 isn't a full theological definition of faith. And that's something that we're going to have to step back and unlearn. Because we see the phrase, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And we see the word is, and we think math problem. We think, oh, this is just a, a word problem. And we're taught that when we see the word is, that means equal sign. But that is not the case in the Greek. So the writer doesn't intend to give a full definition of faith, of what faith is. The writer is simply continuing his thoughts from chapter 10. And in the immediate context, at the end of chapter 10, the writer encourages believers not to shrink back, but to endure by faith. He's exhorting them to persevere through persecution and affliction. And so it's better to think of Hebrews 11 verse 1 as a description of how faith is lived out. It's a description of how faith is lived out. And I say description because there are some unique things that I want to draw out of the text. Let's look again at at Hebrews 11 verse 1, just the first half. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Let's stop there. Let's do a little word study on the word assurance. 
The ESV and NASB translate this word as assurance. I just read. The New King James translates it as substance. The NIV translates it as confidence. And the Holman Christian Standard translates it as reality. Why so many different words in translations? Well, that should make us want to look at what the original Greek word is. So I'm going to teach you some Greek this morning. The Greek word is hypostasis. Now let me point out, hypostasis is not normally translated as assurance. The writer of Hebrews writes the Greek word hypostasis three times in the book of Hebrews. And so let me tell you how the ESV translates it each time. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's translated as nature. In Hebrews 3, 14, it's translated as confidence. And then in our passage this morning, Hebrews 11, 1, it's translated assurance. And I understand every translation, the ESV, NASB, New King James, every translation has to make an interpretive decision. And so the ESV translators must have thought, in the context, this passage has a word that conveys the idea of insurance, assurance. But that's interesting because there's actually another Greek word for assurance. The Greek word for assurance is pleroforia. The word is used throughout the New Testament, and in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, pleroforia is translated as conviction. But then later, in Colossians 2.2, pleroforia is, is translated as assurance, full assurance. And then in Hebrews 6.11 and Hebrews 10.22, it is also Pleroforia, translated as full assurance. And you'll notice that two of those references are in the book of Hebrews. So our writer has a different word, pleroforia, when he wants to convey full assurance. He understands that word. And so here... Why does he use hypostasis? Because if pleroforia means full assurance, then why would he use this word? Why would he use hypostasis? Well, let's study what hypostasis means. First, let's break it down. Hupo, the first part, means under. And then stasis means standing. So you hear that, understanding. But it's not understanding in the English thinking. In the Greek, it's the idea of Standing under. Something that stands under. And together, hypostasis conveys the idea of foundation. It's something that stands under. It's the most basic, essential part of something. And with that, in the Greek, comes the idea of reality, of essential nature. Think of a building. The most basic and essential part of a building is its foundation. The foundation of the building is its hypostasis, its nature. If you take it away, you no longer have anything. If you take away the foundation from a building, you have no building. So that's hypostasis. 
It's the nature of something. It's the essence of something. And for those of you who have studied systematic theology, when I said the word hypostasis, that should have sounded familiar. Because it's the word from which we get hypostatic union. That's the union of the two natures of Christ. It's the systematic theology teaching of what it means for Jesus to be to have the nature of man, of what it means to be a man, the full nature, and then also have the full nature of God. And those fundamental natures are put together in the God-man Jesus. That's hypostasis. That's hypostatic. So let's circle back to hypostasis in our passage. Now faith is the hypostasis of things Hope for. So what is our writer saying? The writer is saying that faith is the substance of the things that we hope for. It's the things that we cling to, the things that we hold in our hand. That is faith. Basically, all the promises of God, salvation itself, our future inheritance is wrapped up in faith, and we hold that faith in our hand, that nature, that reality. The reality of our salvation is held in our hand, and that is our faith. The Greek dictionaries give an alternate definition for hypostasis that I think will really help illustrate what the writer means. An acceptable gloss for hypostasis is guarantee of ownership, entitlement, title, deed. Faith is like holding our title deed to our condo in heaven in our hand. And I've thought about title deeds a lot in the past couple of years because my wife and I still own a condo down in L.A. But obviously, we don't live there now. So sometimes I think about this from time to time, just randomly. I think about what is the only way that someone knows that that property belongs to me and my wife and not the people that we rent it to, right? If you observe that property and see the people going in and out, you'll see the people that we rent it to. You will never see us. So how does someone know that that property belongs to us and not them? It's the title deed. I don't have to physically live there I don't have to be there. I don't even have to see it in order to understand and have the confidence that that property is mine. But then I've thought about this as well. Why do I have confidence in this title deed? Why do I have confidence that if push came to shove, that that property actually would be recognized as mine? What confidence do I have? Is it because the paper on which the title deed is written is of good quality? It's shiny, glittery, is it strong, good paper? Is it the strength of which I hold on to it? Like I have a title deed in my hand, I'm never going to let it go. Is that what makes it strong? Is that what makes me confident that if I hold this paper very tightly in my hand, it will be recognized as true? No, that's not the confidence either. 
The confidence I have in my title deed being recognized to show that that property is mine is because I have confidence in the one who will enforce it. I have confidence in the one who will enforce that piece of paper because when it comes down to it, a title deed is only as secure as the one who enforces it. My title deed to that condo is only so good as long as the U.S. government and the state of California have the power to enforce it. Think about that. If Canada were to come and invade California, let's just say they won in California and they were able to take it, and they took all the land from California, and the U.S. government has no power there anymore, the state of California doesn't exist anymore, does my title deed mean anything? I would show Canada my title deed and I'd show them the paperwork and they would just laugh. They would say, that government has no power here anymore. That government can't enforce this title deed. This land is now ours. That is just a piece of paper that means nothing. My title deed is only as powerful as the one who stands behind it. And same goes for our promises in heaven. Our promises in heaven are only as strong as the one who will honor it. But that's the good thing for us. That's the good news for us. Because the one who will honor it is the sovereign God of this entire universe. And he does not lose, he does not fail, and he will not get overthrown. But think about that as well, the title deed. You don't have to physically see it. You don't have to physically see your eternal reward to know that it's there. You have it in your hand, and that is your faith. Your faith is the nature, the essence of the promise. And you hold that in your hand. And because of that, you have complete confidence that heaven is for you because you hold the title deed in your hand and that title deed is faith. And so that's why in the second half of verse 1, we can have conviction in a promise that is not seen. You don't have to see it. But it's there. You don't have to see it because you're confident in the one who made the promise. In John chapter 20, we see an interaction between Jesus and Thomas, the apostle Thomas. And the resurrected Jesus shows Thomas his hands inside because at this point, Thomas doesn't yet believe that Christ is risen until he sees Jesus. And then Jesus shows, his, shows him his hands inside, sides and side, and Thomas responds in faith. He responds in trust. And in verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You don't have to physically see the promise in order to believe because you trust the one who made the promise. And Jesus says, blessed or those who have not seen and yet believed. I don't have to even live in or see my condo to know that it's mine. I don't have to go and visit it. 
I know because I have the title deed in my hand and I trust the one who is going to enforce it that that is mine. And same goes for our promises in heaven. Our promise of eternal life is secure, not because of how strong our faith is. Remember, it's not how tightly you hold to that title deed. It's not about your own strength. Our eternal life is secure because of how faithful the promise maker is. God is the guarantor of our title deed. Christ is the promiser, and he won't be defeated. And so we hold the nature of the promise in our hand, which is our faith. The hypostasis of our faith is infinitely secure. Again, not because of how hard we grip it, but because of how strong the one who guarantees it is. And so I think this is why the writer uses hypostasis here instead of pleuroforia. Because he's sending the same message that he has been sending for the previous 10 chapters. The nature, the basic essence of faith is not based on anything that we do. The nature of faith is based on the one that we have faith in. It's the one that we trust. Now let's think about the word faith. Biblical faith isn't a blind faith. It's not an existential experience. It's not a leap into the darkness. It's not something that you muster up inside yourself. It's not the force that you activate and wield to make the world that way that you want it to be. Faith is a response of trust in the one who is faithful. Faith is a trust that God's promise will be fulfilled because God is faithful. Not because of anything I contribute. Faith is trust. Faith is about the character of the other person, not you. Faith is about the trust that you have in the character of another, in this case, namely God. Since we're doing some Greek, let's study the Greek word for faith. It's pistis. We often translate the verb form of pistis as entrust. John chapter 2, 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all. All people. The word entrust is the verb form for pistis. Essentially, Jesus didn't have faith in the crowds because he knew their heart. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. And that's what faith is. Faith is trust in someone because of their trustworthiness. And we understand this idea of faith and trust in our daily life. We just don't call it that sometimes. But think about it. Think about babysitters. If I'm going to find a babysitter, I'm going to find someone that I trust. And I trust them based on their character, on their track record. 
because I know them. And when I hand my kids over to them, I am putting my faith in them. I'm entrusting my kids to them. But think about it. When I do that, when I hand my kids over, it's not about how sincerely I hope that they are trustworthy. It's not about me saying, okay, now that I hand my kids over to you, I'm going to will up a bunch of faith in you because the more faith I have in you, the more trustworthy you are. No, that person was already objectively trustworthy. What I did in myself and putting my faith in them had nothing to do with their character. Had nothing to, or doesn't improve their character. It doesn't increase how much trust I should have in them. My trust doesn't make God trustworthy. He's already objectively trustworthy. What my trust does is I now acknowledge and I now recognize that He is trustworthy. And it's in that sense, I can understand why the ESV would translate assurance. The hypostasis, the nature of faith, is, not, is, it, is an insurance assurance in a person, namely God. The hypostasis, the nature of faith, is an assurance in who God is. It's not a self-assurance. It's not that I have assurance. It's that you know how faithful that that God is, that you now recognize, that you now trust him. That's the nature of our faith. It's our assurance in who God is. The foundation of our faith is not built in our strength, but on the strength of God, the faithful one. And that's the faith. That's the substance that you hold in your hand. That is your confidence that you now have. Because faith is the nature, the essence, the title deed of the promises of God that you now hold. The promises that are hoped for, even though you can't see them. This is hope. But biblical hope is not weak hope. It's not the idea that I hope it doesn't rain to get today, or I hope it hope the 49ers win today. That's not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is a confident hope. It's a hope of expectation based on the character of the one who made the promise. The strength of the hope is not how much I want it, but the strength of the hope is in the one who made the promise. The one who made the promise doesn't fail. He doesn't miss. And so my hope is confidently in Him. It's the objective realities that we are confident will come in the future. But that confidence affects our present reality now. Because a writer is exhorting his readers, you're tempted to shrink back. You're tempted to desert Christ. Don't. Instead, persevere because you have been given a faith that you can be confident in because it's Almighty God who backs the promise. Ephesians 2, verse 8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You are saved by grace through faith. Grace is what saves you. Faith is the hose that connects you to God's grace. Faith is not a work you do. It's a gift. Faith is not something you muster up. It's something you receive from God. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 is Paul writing, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It's God who chooses you, who gives you a mustard seed of faith, and then it's God who causes the growth. It's God the whole time. The seed doesn't plant itself. The seed doesn't make itself grow. It's not the seed that says, I need to grow, and therefore I'm going to. It's God who causes the growth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and it has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's God who gives you faith. And then it's God who seals you and keeps you. And this is why Christians don't lose their salvation. It's not because Christians have enough strength to hold on. It's not because Christians have enough willpower. Because it's not up to you. You can't lose your salvation because you can't beat God. And it's God who keeps you. It's God who holds you. It's ultimately God who has given us this faith, and therefore it is him who seals us by his Holy Spirit. But at the same time, yes, you respond, you receive. Faith is receiving the free gift, but you didn't do anything. You just received God's grace. But a life that has received God's grace will be one that reflects God's grace. And that leads to the second facet of faith. Faith is trust that is lived out in verse 2. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2. Let's read that again. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This Verse is basically a transition into the other 30 verses of this chapter. And there, the writer is going to walk through the Old Testament to demonstrate how faith is lived out in flesh and blood. He's going to give us a picture of what it looks like. But the writer's point is, is that being saved by grace through faith is not a new concept. Faith is not a brand new New Testament idea. Being saved by grace through faith was always, has always, will always be the one and only way of salvation. 
And so the writer will look back at biblical history, and Pastor Roger will walk us through that to demonstrate that. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by grace through faith way before the Old Testament law was written. Salvation is and always has been accomplished by placing your trust in God's grace. Now, obviously, thinking about the Old Testament saints, during different time periods, there were different levels of understanding of God's plan. Abraham, most likely, didn't have all the details. He didn't have all the details of how God would roll out his plan of salvation. But we now have the New Testament and the Old Testament. We have the full range of what God is going to do, what God has revealed to us. But here, Romans tells us that Abraham simply had faith that God would save him. He placed his trust in the faithful one, confident that God would provide a way of salvation, and God credited that to him as righteousness. So all people of all time, the only way that they have ever been saved and will be saved is through the blood of Christ. But depending on where you lived in history, you knew more or less about the specifics of God's plan. Depending on your place in history, you could only be held accountable for what was possible for you to know. And that's how progressive revelation works. But see, faith is not about head knowledge. It's not about knowing these things. It's about, faith is about entrusting yourself to the faithful one. And so even though Abraham didn't know Jesus by name, he entrusted himself to God and God credited to him as righteousness. But from the beginning of time, it wasn't that you could have faith in anything. You can have, just have faith in general, in anyone. It was only faith. The faith, that is, the faith that has ever saved, the only faith that has ever saved is faith and trust in the one true God. As one professor would say, you can believe something sincerely, but you can be sincerely wrong. It's not about how sincere your faith is. It's not about how much you have in something It's whether or not your trust is actually in the right person. It doesn't matter how much you want it, that person has to be trustworthy. And so it wasn't just faith in general that saved. It was faith in the one true God, in the right person, namely God. And so I know we're talking about the Old Testament saints, but let's just step back and be clear about our own day and age, 2023. In our day and age, we live after the completion and the distribution of the full revelation of God, which is the Bible. And so when thinking about our day and age, our current world, 
God's revelation has been revealed to mankind. And so for us, it's important for us to know that in order to be saved, we must trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again. That's what we are accountable for. That's the gospel that we are accountable to preach, to teach, to go into the world because the Bible has been revealed. And that's why we go into the nations telling them about the hope that we have, the faith that we have in the trustworthy one. And so Hebrews 11 verses 3 to 40, what we'll study next week, is not the hall of the faithful people. It's the hall of the faithful God. The writer's point is not to say, look how much you can accomplish if you simply have enough faith. That wouldn't make any sense. The writer has spent 10 chapters telling us, look at Christ because Christ is better. Why would he now shift to say, now look inward at your faith, muster it up, build up enough faith because you can accomplish so much. No. Trust, faith is trust that is lived out because faith is just the appropriate response to the gift of grace. Faith is a response to God's faithfulness. And faith demonstrates itself in a life that lives consistently with God's grace. Think about the people that the writer will mention. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Gideon, David, Samuel, These are very well-known names. Thinking about that list, I used to think of these people as water guns. I used to think, wow, look at this list. Look at these people. Look how much faith they had. They were able to do great things because they faithed enough. They built enough water faith pressure. And therefore, their lives were able to exert so many great things. But that's missing the point of the writer. He points to these men and women not to point out how great they are. He points to them to demonstrate how great God is. They are fire hoses. They are useless until God, by his grace, connects them to himself, connects them to Christ, and then it is God who did great things through them. Yes, they had faith, but they only had that faith because God gave it to them. And then they just lived consistently with that faith. Now, don't mishear me. They aren't robots. Yes, there, are, there is human responsibility Yes, they, they are responsible for their own actions. We are responsible for our own actions. James chapter 2, 18. We read it, uh, Albert read it earlier. Think about it. Your works isn't what saves you. Works can never save. But works are evidence that you are filled with God's grace. A fire hose with no water, 
is useless. A water hose, a fire hose, not connected to a source, is useless. Your works demonstrate that you're connected to the source. A fire hose connected to a source then naturally spills out water. It does what it's supposed to do. A branch connected to a good tree will naturally produce good fruit. Now, since we've been studying some Greek, let's do another Greek lesson. Look at the words, receive their commendation at the end of verse 2. Some translations will say, obtained a good testimony or gained approval. The Greek word is martureo. It means to bear witness or be a witness. Again, it should sound familiar because it's from the word that we get martyr. But we think of martyrs as those who've died for their faith. But they're not martyrs because they died. They're martyrs because they were witnesses. They're martyrs because they testified to faith. To the point of death, some of them. And that's the idea here. It's the idea of being a witness, a martureo. But the word is passive. So they were made into a witness. Basically, God formed their lives, these Old Testament saints, he formed their lives into a good testimony of what faith lived out looks like. The lives of these Old Testament saints stands as a testimony to us. Basically, it's like we're in court trying to determine what faith is. And God points to them as his witnesses. I present my witnesses. These are good witnesses. Here is exhibit A and exhibit B. And the writer points out this is what, what is happening in these saints' lives should be happening in yours. This present reality. That they produced good fruit when they were connected to the vine. Therefore, your life ought to bear fruit because you are connected to the vine. Your life, too, becomes a good witness, a good martureo of God's grace. Because look down in Hebrews 11, all the way to verse 39, the end of chapter 11. Look at that. We'll read that. Hebrews 11, verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should, be, they should not be made perfect. They were made a testimony, and yet they didn't see the promise in their life. They clinged on to the t- title deed of faith. And they didn't physically see the promise because they would later. They were witnesses of what that was like. They were witnesses, testimonies of believing even though they didn't see. And blessed are those who believe even when they don't see it. They were good witnesses of that. They were good testimonies of what it was like. 
to have the title deed and yet not see it in this life. We won't see it in this life, but we hold it in our hand. And that's what these Old Testament saints were. They were good martyreos. They were good martyrs showing us, testifying us, witnessing to what it's like. Now, as we're thinking about faith, let's dispel some of the common misconceptions of faith. When we come to this passage, Hebrews 11, verse 1, and we talk about faith, there's some that will automatically think, well, what about Matthew 17, 20? When Jesus says, and he's confronting the disciples, and he's saying that they have little faith, verse 20, because of your little faith, they couldn't do things, right? So because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Some will point to that verse and say, well, see, faith is what you can do. You can do great things. You can move mountains if you have enough faith. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus, his point to his disciple isn't that they can do supernatural things if they muster up enough faith in themselves. His point is that they have not yet fully entrusted themselves to God. At this point in their lives, right before the resurrection, they have not yet fully believed. They don't even understand a lot of them. They have not been connected to the source yet. They can't do anything because they don't have God's grace in their life. But then we do see in Acts when these disciples are finally connected to, who, to, to God of the universe, to the faithful one, we see that they specifically do great things. They do end up doing miracles, supernatural things. Why? Because they're connected to the source. They're able to do those things because God in his sovereign plan wanted them to do these miracles. And they would. And then there comes the question, when you think about faith, there comes the question that you may be thinking, but over the course of my lifetime, can my faith grow? And the answer is yes. If you're a believer, your faith ought to grow throughout your lifetime. But your faith will grow because you'll become more and more connected to God. And you'll become more and more connected to God because you'll study God's word And you'll learn more and more of who God is as he reveals himself to you, as the Spirit works in you. And you'll know God better. You'll trust him more. God gave us a Bible so that we would know who he is. But then we'll also walk life with God. The more trials that we endure, the more that we cling to the rock of ages in in the stormy trials of life, The more we experience God as our center, the more we will trust him. The more our faith will grow. Because that's how relationships work. The more time you spend with someone, the more you trust them. So yes, your faith will grow. But your faith will grow more like a mirror. Every life experience is another round of polish on the mirror. 
The more you know God's word, the more you walk with God, the more you go through the ups and downs with God by your side, the more God refines you through trials, through discipline. And day by day, year by year, you move from being a dull mirror to a more reflective one. Experience by experience, trial by trial, you reflect more of the faithful one. You look more like Christ. So growing in faith isn't about you pulling yourself up. It's letting God polish your life so that you reflect more and more of Him, more and more of His grace. That's what it means to grow in your faith. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is calling these believers too. He's saying, don't put your trust in the old covenant. Don't go back to that because the old covenant was just a shadow of the real thing. The old covenant was just meant to be a tutor to teach you that you need something better. And Jesus is better. And the new covenant that he offers is better. Put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. Now, as I speak, there are some of you that are listening that you aren't yet Christians. And I'm praying even now that as you listen, as you hear the word of God now, that God would be using this to call you to believe. And so you may be asking, how do I become a Christian? Well, it's a free gift. As I mentioned already, it's God who did all the work. You can't and you don't contribute anything to the equation. Being a Christian is simply acknowledging that Christ did everything for you. So what did he do? Jesus died on the cross for your sins and then he rose again. You see, all people are sinners, meaning that we do things against God. And this God created the whole universe. He's a God over all things. And since we are sinners and we have done these wrong things, our wrongs need to be paid for. They need to be punished. And so God, in his grace, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. Meaning that Jesus took the punishment for you. He took the punishment that you deserved. He took all of God's anger and wrath upon himself. And that happened when Jesus died on the cross. But to demonstrate that Jesus is God and that he paid for sins, Jesus rose again three days later. And so being a Christian is receiving this free gift and responding to God's grace in trust, in faith. It's entrusting yourself to him. And that's the free gift that is offered to you. A few years ago, I spent a couple weeks in Zambia, Africa. I went to on a trip to help train local pastors of these extremely poor communities. 
And so we went to rural towns there in Zambia uh, where poverty was the norm. It was expected, and it was pretty extreme. Every townsperson, including some of these pastors, were focused on just having the human necessities for the day. When I say human necessities, I mean that they just wanted to have enough food for that day. They wanted to have just enough clothing for that day. A roof over their head that night. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have savings. They didn't have money or valuables in a vault. They lived day to day. And our pastoral training consisted of basically preaching the gospel, the foundational truths of who Jesus is, how he paid for our sins, it being a free gift, all the things that I just mentioned. And we did that because some of those pastors don't have a formal education. Most of them don't. And some of them don't even have a middle school or high school education. They didn't have seminaries. And we did this because the prosperity gospel was huge there, is huge there. That's what's being taught. And so we wanted to teach them what it actually means to believe in Jesus and that believing in Jesus is free and it's available to all. And so during this training, we had a share time, and I'll never forget it. One of our translators, her name was Sylvia, she stood up to share. She had, we were sharing what we learned in these lessons. And so she stood up to share. And she said, I thank God that the gospel is free. Because that means I can afford it. And that means it's not just for the rich people out there. And when she shared that, I was humbled. I was thinking, if I had a mic right now, I would drop it. Because you understand it. You get it. The gospel is free. And I had never really thought about that that way. But God had called her and given her faith to believe, and she understood it. And so she was saying, If there was a cost, a monetary cost to the gospel, I wouldn't be able to afford it. But because it's free and available, someone like me can be saved. And I thought, she made it sound so simple and yet at the same time so profound. She understood the gospel. That it's a free gift. It's available to every person, rich and poor, smart and dumb, strong and weak, any and every person. And that's what's available for you this morning. And that's why I plead with you this morning that if you don't have this faith yet, if you don't have this gift, now's the time to accept it, receive it. All it takes is for you to respond to God and say, yes, you did all the work. Jesus did all the work, and I want that. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
All you have to do this morning is confess and believe. To put your trust in the faithful one. And guess what? The God who has been and always will be faithful will be faithful to save you now. And just like that, you become a fire hose connected to the eternal, all-powerful God. And then you just wait and see as God's grace fills your life Just wait and see what God will do when his grace, when his strength is flowing through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus sending Jesus. And that's why Christmas means so much. That was you sending your son, Jesus taking on flesh, humanity, so that you could be our representative, so that you could take our punishment, so you could die for our sins. But we thank you, you did not stay dead. You rose again. And in that you secured our eternal reward. With that, we have confidence that the title deed of faith that we hold in our hand, it means heaven. And so I pray that we would cling to faith, that we would endure in the face of trial like the audience of Hebrew was facing, that you would be with us, fill us with your grace, and then work in our life. I pray for those who don't know you now, that you would call them to yourself, that they would believe, that you would fill them with this hope that's resting on your promises. So I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.